Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. We've got an important one today for once. My guest is Lewis King. Never heard of him, Al. Why should I listen to someone I've never heard of? Okay, okay, I'll tell you why. You just might learn something and be inspired and carry that forward and make the world a goddamn better place, okay? Hey, Al, do you really think that scolding one of your listeners is a way to attract an audience? Oh, Jesus, you're not a listener, you're a device. A foil I've made up to make a point. Okay, fine. What's your point? My point is, is that my guest, Lewis King, is a hero of mine. And that's because he spent the last 25 years training folks on the north side of Minneapolis for jobs. And the north side is one of those isolated urban areas that in America has been the victim of systemic racism for decades and decades and basically still is with high incidence of crime, of poverty, of joblessness. And Lewis King has made it his life's work to provide training for thousands and thousands of Northside residents to get the skills for good jobs. And then he's placed them in those jobs. And on top of that, he's a happy guy. Lewis King is a happy guy, and he's a great talker, too, okay? Okay, okay, if you put it that way. Now I'm looking forward to listening. Good, great. Now, it's no coincidence that Lewis is my guest. Last week, we saw the anniversary of George Floyd's murder, and he speaks to that in our conversation. The George Floyd thing was a Birmingham moment. It was a Bull Connor moment with the attack dogs on the women and children being broadcast by Walter Cronkite into the white homes. And America really doesn't have the stomach for the viciousness of the system. My dad pointed to that when I was 12 and said, no Jew can be for that. Boom. Uh, Bull Connor, Bull Connor was the Alabama public safety commissioner during the uh, civil rights movement. And in 1963, ordered the use of attack dogs and high-pressure fire hoses on demonstrators in 
in my home in Minneapolis, my parents and my brother and I always watched the evening news. And when Bull Connor did that, my dad pointed to the TV screen and said, no Jew can be for that. A lot of Americans felt that outrage when they saw those images on TV, and Bull Connor's brutality contributed to the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And hopefully we will now, in the wake of George Floyd, we'll see the, the kind of progress we made in the wake of Bull Connor, not just the Civil Rights Act, but the 65 Voting Rights Act. Hopefully we will see those kind of changes. Right now, though, I'm hearing pessimistic things coming out of the Senate in terms of the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. Now, this is full of very, very sensible stuff, and basically only very, very sensible stuff, and I'm going to read you what is in it. And it's a list, a somewhat long list of stuff, but it's all really important, and it's all incredibly sensible. Okay, first, it grants power to the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division to investigate police departments to determine if there has been a pattern and practice of bias or misconduct by the department. That just makes perfect sense. It gives grants to state attorneys general to, quote, create an independent process to investigate misconduct or excessive use of force by police forces. It's hard to argue with that, right? It establishes a federal registry of police misconduct complaints and disciplinary actions. How can you be against that? It enhances accountability for police officers who commit misconduct by restricting the application of qualified immunity. Now, that's a little complicated. Qualified immunity is a legal doctrine which protects public servants from being sued by citizens for the stuff they do in the course of their official duties. Now, I've heard there's talk of there being a compromise on this and making it available for citizens to sue the police force instead of the individual cop. That seems to make sense. I'm going to go on. Requires federal uniformed police officers to have body-worn cameras. Of course, of course. Requires marked field police vehicles to be equipped with dashboard cameras. Of course, of course. Requires state and local law enforcement agencies that receive federal funding to ensure the use of body-worn and dashboard cameras. Restrict the transfer of military equipment to police. That's so the police aren't just have these tanks and stuff they really don't need that just causes uh, more intimidation and has had a deleterious effect. Requires state and local enforcement agencies that receive federal funding to adopt anti-discrimination policies and training programs, including those targeted at fighting racial profiling. Of course, of course. Prohibit federal police officers from using chokeholds or other carotid holds. The, the carotid hole is, is the kind of hole that was used on Eric uh, Garner in New York. And requires state and local law enforcement agencies that receive federal funding to adopt the same prohibition. 
prohibit the issuance of no-knock warrants, warrants that allow the police to conduct a raid without knocking or announcing themselves. This is this is uh, how Brianna Taylor was killed. Change the threshold for the permissible use of force by federal law enforcement officers from reasonableness to only when necessary to prevent death or serious bodily injury. Mandate that federal officers use deadly force only as a last resort and that de-escalation be attempted and condition federal funding to state and local enforcement agencies on the adoption of the same policy. Though that's what's in it. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. There's nothing that should prevent this from being adopted. There have to be 10 Republican senators that aren't nut jobs. Well, that might be asking a little much. There are only seven Republican senators voted to convict Trump in the second impeachment trial. We're just at a scary time in history. But if we can't get this done, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, I just don't see how Biden and the Democrats in Congress are going to accomplish the stuff he laid out in the joint session speech in April. And these are things, infrastructure, early childhood education, daycare, addressing climate, all these things that we can't afford not to do. Then I believe Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema will have to consider the filibuster. And they both said that they will not vote to end it. But as my steady listeners know, Norm Ornstein and I have been calling for a modification of the filibuster. Instead of 60 votes to end a filibuster, you need 41s to sustain a filibuster. 41 senators have to show up on the floor. Chuck Schumer can call a vote at 3 a.m. 41 senators have to be on the floor and vote to sustain the filibuster. But then they have to stay there and debate. No one has to talk for 24 hours like Strom Thurmond did. There's 41 of them. Tom Cotton can talk for three minutes, pass it off to Josh Hawley, who passes it off to Ted Cruz, but no green eggs and ham. It has to be germane. And then the American people can finally watch a real debate on these issues. And it lasts as long as they can keep 41 senators on the floor. They have 50. They can take turns leaving for four or five hours. But that will get old. Mitch McConnell won't like it. I'm I'm 79 years old. I don't want to be here. This actually restores the filibuster to what what it was. The filibuster is there so that the minority can debate something that they feel strongly about. But they got to debate. And they got to stay there. And that will get old very fast. Believe me, I know these people. And the American people will see its senators debate important issues. So push may come to shove. And if Manchin and Cinema can't get there to abolish the filibuster, I think this is a friggin' great alternative. Couple, couple other little things. Um, I've been visiting my daughter's family in Los Angeles this past week. Uh, because it's my my grandson's eighth birthday and my 70th. I'm 70. It's the new 67. And I feel great. My 
grandson's little sister is four. They are beautiful. So are the other two. Uh, my son's kids, they are five and two. And the other day I said to Franny, we have four really beautiful grandchildren. We must be good looking. And she said, we used to be. Now, my grandson is funny. When I arrived in L.A., my grandson said, happy birthday, Grandpa. And I said, do you know how old I am? And he said, one. And I said, no, I'm 70. And he said, I was close. And then a couple days ago, I was, I was in their guest room, and we're, Fanny and I are staying in the guest room, and I was going to take a shower, but the shower towels uh, were on the dryer, so I was just standing there in my underwear, and my grandson, Joe, comes in the room, looks at me, and says, well, you look comfortable. I cannot tell you how lucky I am and how fortunate I feel for the gifts that I've received in life, and I want everyone to have the opportunities that I've had and that my family has had, everyone. And I do believe in the power of public policy and politics and government, but also in the, just in the power of individuals like my guest, Lewis King, who has helped thousands and thousands of black Minneapolitans get that first foothold. We'll be right back with Lewis King, with an important one. Finally. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's good to see you. I told some folks uh, at dinner last night that I was interviewing you, and they were very excited. All right. They're uh, Minneapolitans. You're a legend that goes far and wide. Try to run a good show. You do. And you've been doing it for 20 years? Uh, I made the merger in 1996. So we formed Summit in 96. So I'm just short 25 years. 25 years. Okay. 25 years. The merger. What's the merger? You talked yeah. about a merger. What's the merger? So uh, as you might remember, I was an Army officer. 
and then you I merged the military with no, John, no, no. Uh, I got, no, I got okay. out when the Berlin Wall went down. Oh, and started with the group. So you had done your job. I'd done it. You man. I was defeated done. communism. Woo! <laughs> somebody, didn't, somebody didn't tell Putin that, but yeah, you're done. Um, and then I started with Phyllis Wheatley for a minute, and then I was with this group called Two or More. Now Phyllis Wheatley is a, a community center here in Minneapolis. Right. I just did an interim gig with them. Then I went over to Two or More in 1993. And um, within two years, Harry Davis came to me and said, TCOIC was failing what I considered coming over. And I was like, nope. He said, how about a merger? And so we took two or more, which built those big green Adirondack chairs that you see around town. And we combined them with TCOIC and formed Summit in 96. And I ran for the school board at the same time and served one term and declared defeat and left. When you say you did these Adirondack chairs, this is giving jobs to uh, right young to, people. To young people, to, you have basically prepared mainly young people, but other folks too for the workplace, for jobs from the North Side. And and tell us about the North Side, Minneapolis. Remember, this is going to a national audience, so uh, this is not just for the Twin Cities. So you're going to have to paint help me out here and right. paint, paint a picture. North Side is what. North Minneapolis is a pocket of poverty in an otherwise prosperous region inhabited primarily by African-Americans. And to give you some idea of the poverty, 60% of the people in North Minneapolis are on some type of county program. Mm -hmm. I measured it about 75%, but they came back and said 60, 61. I'm like, well, what's a few percentage points? When that's the way that the majority of the families survive. And because uh, they are economically and socially isolated, the primary thing that you see is the associated crime and violence and also the social service programs, which I call the misery management machine. And we got a lot of programs. I've heard you call it that. We got a lot of misery management machine. If those programs work, we wouldn't have the issues that we have. All right. Now, now, now you, you talk about it being isolated, and isolated in a number of ways. One of them literally is transportation. Uh, one of them is literally it was isolated because it was redlined. So it was one of the few places black folks could buy homes. And, you know, when you look at this country and its history with black people, uh, one, I'm very optimistic. I think that today we have a great opportunity here. There's a big opportunity on the table. But one thing we have to do is face ourselves, and that's really difficult. It's difficult to say I'm an alcoholic. It's difficult to say I have financial issues. And so America's challenge and the challenge in Minneapolis is to look at the history to understand how we got here today, uh, because those, unless you just want to believe that those people are genetically inclined to crime and being on welfare, et cetera, and that's simply not well, that, true. That, that's what some people like to think. Well, that's easy, but I, I would remind them that if you go back, I was three-fifths a man. I was property, all right? It was easy to consider me an animal, a brute, dangerous, lazy, all those things. And then later, the Negro could not handle the vote, could not be a responsible citizen, could not do many, many things. You always have to tell yourselves these things in order to justify what you do, but the things that you do have a lasting impact, and we see them today. So all the vestiges of the past are gone for the most part, but their impact, the residual impact they have remain, and there are new ways to do it. Well, if you just look at family wealth, number one way that families create wealth is through home ownership. 
Well, guys coming back from, let's go back to the end of World War II. You had the GI Bill. Correct. Okay. The FHA, literally, Federal Housing Authority, literally, literally demanded covenants <laughs> in, in mortgage contracts that you couldn't have black guys. Well, and you, you, you in, know where in, that came in certain from. Areas. The Dixiecrats, uh, they've always been there. Whether And I spent time studying uh, Roosevelt and the WPA, which I believe we need to bring back today. We need that today, right now, to put them in to work. Uh, I, hope, I hope the infrastructure projects that Biden is talking about is part of that. It's very complex because of the nature of the white-dominated uh, trade unions in Minneapolis, per se. Well, at one point, I want I, I keep putting earmarks in because you keep uh, hitting on something I do want to talk about. You talk about the Great Migration. And I want to talk about Minneapolis versus, sure. say, Detroit. Absolutely. Say, Chicago. Yep. Say, Cleveland. Say, Cincinnati. And Minneapolis, because the Great Migration wasn't so... Just we didn't have the the numbers. The manufacturing was not here. The manufacturing was concentrated there. This was far more agrarian when you look at it or mining. And what made Minneapolis, when you look at this place and you travel, it's a very small place with a lot of Fortune 500 companies because of the river and the lakes, okay, the geopolitical and economic uh, way of getting the goods to market. Whereas when you start going from Chicago all the way over to Ohio, Gary, Indiana, et cetera, far more industrialized, and that's where the factories were and where the black folks went. We didn't have that phenomena here. They weren't coming here to work the farms. And that's why political power here was much harder to get in Minnesota. I I say this because I think the George Floyd murder did something, which was most people, I think, in the United States think of Minneapolis as one of the most progressive cities in the country. In many ways, we are. But boy, oh boy, yeah. was this eye-opening because we've had a history of this kind of police violence. Yep. We also have these huge disparities in wealth, in income, in employment, uh, in education that in, in some cases, some of the worst disparities in the country like in high school graduation, um, I believe we may be 50th, believe it or not, yeah. in that. Now, maybe that's because the way they keep track, our white kids in Minnesota are among the best educated, but we have these disgraceful sure. and disparities. It, so, true story, I was sitting on a firing point in, in Germany, and Rockies went the wrong way. I told God I'd do good if he got me out of that, and I landed here. Right. 30 years later, I get it. Right. You do not have an indigenous black middle class here in the story. Everybody's an import. The Fortune Fives bring in the well-educated African-Americans. They live outside the perimeter. Their kids don't go to school here. They don't start businesses here. When the kids go off to college, they don't come back. Look at the two Congress people who have been elected from the 5th Congressional District, Keith Ellison from Detroit. And Ilhan Omar from Mogadishu. In my hometown of Jacksonville, Florida, that would never happen. In Atlanta, Georgia, where I went to college, that would never happen. Throughout the South, African Americans have political power. Look at the new Dixiecrats, Stacey Abrams, and all those people coming out now, right? 
So you've never been able to get your footing here. And what occurs is all the people come in from Chicago and Gary looking for opportunity. You're right, it's progressive, but progressive equals charity. It does not equal necessarily the social networks and the economic networks that you need to have a thriving community. The basic tenet was let the police keep the cap on it and keep it away from us, and therefore it was okay. I used to live within two blocks of 38th in Chicago. Cup Foods was my store. I lived in the Bryant neighborhood, which was the largest concentration of African-American homeowners in the state. It ran from 38th Street to 42nd Street, from Chicago to the freeway. It was not a very big community. Sharon says Belton lived there, Dorothy Woolfolk, people that you recall, right? All that's gone now. And in addition to schools, I'll say this. One, the children come to school with a lot of things from home that the schools are not built to deal with. Nevertheless, you have the responsibility to educate. And we're done, we're, we're in a, we have a system here that's dominated by adult interests versus those of the children, and they're on defense. So I, I'm at the point where I know we have to build a supplemental educational system that's parallel, much like they did with the HBCUs, and ensure that our children are prepared for the opportunities that are opening up today because with the tech migration that's occurring, the tech explosion and the um, aging of the baby boomers, we have inordinate opportunity. And the other opportunity that I see, Al, is the fact that when you look closely at it, urban issues and rural issues are the same. The economic and social isolation, the children leaving, the, the hopelessness, I think that here's a chance, too, for us, instead of competing uh, with the people in greater Minnesota, to reach out to them and, and say that we have the same issues. Let's work together, for example, around broadband access. Because if not, you get these power-hungry politicians who tell them all your problems are caused by these other people. We're like, well, how are we causing any problems? Wait a minute. You're saying politicians, they're basically saying that Anything good that happens to black people takes away from them? Oh, black people, immigrants, the man from the moon, <laughs> you name it. I mean, anything, you know, uh, since the beginning of time, people have found ways to divert attention, all right? I always tell folks, Adolf Hitler didn't invent the Nazis. They were always there. He just came and sang the song that they wanted to hear. Uh, Donald Trump, he didn't invent these people. They were always there. They're sitting there in misery. You go to Mogadishu, you go anywhere, there are people who are looking for something, and if somebody comes along with an outlet, they will follow that. However, in this country, there's always been a history of us standing up and facing our evil, our dark side, and the bad stuff, and then overcoming it. I heard an interesting story a few weeks ago about how Harriet Tubman retired in New York. And people were like, well, how did that occur? Well, when she was running the railroad and they went into Canada, of course she made relationships along the way. And you just have to stop and ask yourself, who would open up their doors to a runaway slave? Who would help? They had nothing to gain. Well, they were the same people that were the Freedom Riders, the same people that helped found the HBCUs in 1867 with my alma mater, Morehouse, and Howard, black. Co colleges and universities, yeah. mm -hmm. right? White people founded those schools and were the first presidents in the early years. That's Howard, Morehouse, Spelman, all those schools. And eventually, look at the leadership that they are producing today. You turn on the television 
And there we are, because these people understood not only did we need to be free, but we need to be educated and have leaders. But my point is, I believe that there are people of all walks of life that if they see folks in a righteous struggle, they get engaged. And that's what we do at Summit. We help poor people who are locked into poverty escape the new underground railroad. We say the best social service program in the world is a job. So tell me about Summit Academy. Is it a grade-level curriculum, or is it any age getting trained to do jobs? So for those of us over 60 who might be listening, we remember vocational programs and vocational schools or mm-hmm. even technical colleges, and now they're all colleges, right? It is an accredited vocational training center, or CTE now, Career Training Educate, Technical and Education, right? We offer 20-week certifications uh, for folks. I can take you from... A household that was earning twenty grand a year, and in twenty weeks you can make thirty-five to forty thousand dollars a year with no out-of-pocket costs. We focus on three things: construction, healthcare, and IT. We were the leading construction trainer in the region. My background is training. Now, now I've met you a number of times. Obviously, we've gotten to know you. One of the times we got together was at the U.S. Bank Stadium. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stadium, and you put a lot of people to work there. Yes, we helped build all three stadiums, TCF, U.S. Bank, and the Twins ballpark. We cut our teeth on construction training. I chose it because, again, as an Army officer, you you know all your men have employment. Now, what, what rank did you end up at? I was a major. Okay. All right. So 100% employment, health care, housing, and discipline. Ta-da, right? <laughs> Ta-da. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> and, and, and so when you have this community where the little boys are running around with their hats turned sideways, nobody graduates from high school, they go to prison, they got to work, they got kids, what do you now, do? Now, the, 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 the hat sideways isn't destiny. I mean, you can't look at a kid <laughs> and say. L- listen, there's pressure out there on these boys, all right? Um, nope. So if you talk to them. And you say, well, what's up? They say, well, this is all I know. All right? L- let me let me make it even plainer for you. Middle-class African-American kids see everyone around them graduated from high school and going to college. That is what they see. That's the social network. They have to try really hard to fail. We can boost our kids up. In a poor neighborhood where nobody works, or when William Julius Wilson talks about when work, disappears where nobody works and the man the boy is under pressure to provide the only thing there's the underworld all right and you have to fit in so that turns sideways is a real thing at summit we teach them to take the hat off when you walk into the building look me in the eyes smile by the way you have a beautiful smile son and you're going to be with us now so we create a new community that prepares them to enter the mainstream, which has different mores and different way of operating, and you learn to build a new social network, all right? You you get with a different set of people, and that's what I count on my supporters for, not just the money, but the access to the jobs, the access to businesses, the access to people. So when we got involved with Mortensen Construction here, the largest construction company in our friend Ted Mondale uh, was was at the uh, stadium. We put a lot of people to work who are now journey level. And then they set a tradition for others to follow them, which I call the ant trail. And the ant trail is everything. 
when one goes in as the first adopter of, and learns how to navigate the terrain, others follow. And we've done the same thing with IT, uh, Atomic Data, U.S. Bank, Ameriprise, and other companies. Well, tell me what that is. Tell me what level of training that is and what the path is for someone who has that level of training forward in IT. Um, this country is undergoing a transition as it did 100 years ago with the Great Migration as we move from agrarian to manufacturing. Today, we're moving from manufacturing to uh, the world of technology. I mean, I'm surprised that this isn't a Zoom conversation, for example, right? Well, we're... we're we didn't have to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We're <yeah>. together. <laughs> We're together now, right, right. Yeah, well. But if you think about Instacart and Amazon and the way the world has changed there, huge demands. At the same time, you have a retiring workforce. Well, we now can put people into help desk. That's for folks like us who need help. Uh, network operations centers. We all operate on networks, and there's something always going wrong. Cybersecurity, need I say Cyber more? Cybersecurity. Need I say more? My God. Need I say more? That's the field, son. From your doorbell <laughs> to your bank account. <laughs> to your pipeline. <laughs> to your pipeline. <laughs> to your electrical grid, all right? Yeah. I mean, we're also interlinked now that if you find one weak spot, boom. So... And then finally, there's also app design. There's an app for everything. You got 100 apps on your phone and you use three. But there are applications that we need. And then the other thing that we discovered the other day is this whole thing about broadband access. People think it's just about having the service. Well, Comcast and others can make the service available for as cheap as 11 bucks a month. The second challenge is devices. Well, we found out during the pandemic, they can give them away, right? You know, look. Here, distributor. Hot spots. The third challenge is the one that we are mounting up. And again, this is another WPA style thing. Actually being able to use the technology to take advantage of the telehealth, take advantage of the telebanking, to shop online. We have a huge divide in terms of knowledge and people actually having the expertise. So another field that's wide open and, again, emerging and, again, is urban as well as rural in terms of applications is educating folks and training them on how to use the broadband access that they have. So these opportunities are there, and the great thing about it is rather than the path of master's degree, undergrad, master's degree, Ph.D., is badges and certifications, much like Boy Scouts. So your career is in your hands. And again, this is back to my military days. You learn to manage your own career, and you learn to take courses that will move you up. And as you go through the field, you can pretty much set your own path as well as become an entrepreneur and do business uh, working for yourself. So, I mean, do you have many kids or many of, of your students and graduates who take a sort of, I won't, won't say entry level, but a, a certain level of skill and keep going and turn that into... And it doesn't take very long. So we began the IT pilot probably three years ago. We now have people who earn through Atomic Data over seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 a year. What does Atomic Data do? Uh, they do network uh, security and network um, support. 
they installed networks in stadiums and they did U.S. Bank around the country in small, mid-sized businesses run by a guy named Jim Walford. Ted is over there. Also. Ted Mondale, Ted of course. Mondale uh, uh, Vice President Mondale passed uh, just a few weeks ago and uh, wonderful, wonderful man. As yeah. And the uh, great kids, and Ted's one of them. Absolutely. Uh, Ted was uh, the key to my success at U.S. Bank Stadium, and then he introduced us to Jim Walford. They gave us a shot. Jim has employed 48 of our people over the last three years. They, we make up 17% of his workforce. There's another company, Design Ready Controls, a small manufacturer up in Brooklyn Park, hiring our electricians. Again, we took their retention rates up to 90% because our people spend 20 weeks with us. And the one thing that the pandemic did was take me away from um, the students, which I call the troops, and I get to walk around and play grandpa and give them, you know, you got to give them that encouragement because they're they're pushing really hard. They're still poor. Uh, we set up a student success fund because 300 bucks might as well be a million dollars with these folks, and it'll knock them off the block. And many times they are the leaders of the extended family. So if something happens in the family, they have issues. One of the things that the government did I thought was great during the pandemic was give uh, institutions of higher education like ours support money for the students. So you could pay for rent and child care and transportation, food. Food is a big deal. And we formally couldn't do that. And because we got support from the um, federal government, we established a fund, and now we're going to continue to build it. The upside of this is incredible, Al. We went from two offerings to four, and we will offer financial services training Starting next year as well, we're building uh, partnerships with the financial institutions because you got to be able to buy that house, but you got to be able to save. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Lewis King. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What what do I call these folks who are working? You've trained them and working, but still are keeping in touch with you. What would you call they them? They are alumni. You're an alumni, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. how many uh, students and alumni do you have now? Gee whiz, thousands, uh, uh-huh. literally. Okay. We've not had the ability to track them. We don't have the infrastructure like a University of Minnesota. Uh, we mainly count on radio and, and now, luckily, uh, social media. 
But we're adding an alumni relations person because in construction, the apprenticeship program sets your path, all right? Mm -hmm. In IT, you don't have a structured apprenticeship. So we have to build a network of people who are in, who are connected and interrelated so that they can keep each other informed and trade opportunities, which will be the way that they navigate in the future. So we're adding that alumni. Yeah, I've been to these uh, apprentice programs at the trades. And, you know, I remember going to the carpenters. And these guys are working, but they come in, they're training while they're working. That's correct. And um, I, I remember le- leaving a training going like, Okay, never buy a place not built by a union carpenter. <laughs> well, you want <laughs> you, know? you want real structure in your training and there's transparency. You know exactly how many hours it takes to become journey level. You know exactly when you're going to get pay raises along the way. The challenge is to keep working, all right? So controlling the work is a big deal. Now in IT, I don't know how long it's going to take them to move to apprenticeships per se. But if you look at what those programs do and how they work, it all boils down also not only to the training, but to the social network. So when I know when there's an opportunity, I call my boy Al up and go, hey, look, this is something you need to do. But in order to be prepared, here's a certification you need to go get. And you'll get that type of social capital traded. And when you do that, you can have a prosperous community. We have thousands of people. Right now, uh, we're enrolling 1,000 a, a people a year in our program. Our um, objective is to be up to 2,000 by 2023 and 3,000 by 2025 by combining the online platforms that we built now because of the pandemic. Well, so I can't think of anyone doing any more <laughs> good than you are doing. You are a hero to me. You really are. I mean, this is this is what we need. This is what we need. We're having a lot of fun. It's somewhat Oh, that's where you, that's your go-to. Yeah. I know whenever I I pay a compliment like that, it's like uh we're having fun. We're, we're having, having fun. fun. And I know yeah. you are. You yeah. always pretty much every time I see you, you have a smile on your face. Yeah. It, it it's what we were built to do. You you look at it, you say, "Well, what's needed? We have to put our people to work. This is the last challenge for this country. I'm a patriot. I love this country. I spent a good deal of my time in boots uh, training people to defend the country. We have to get beyond this economic What, what did you learn through your military training that informs this? And I'm sure it's pretty much everything, but... There's a book called um, All That We Can Be, which I think really nails it. And that book laid out how we desegregated the Officer Corps and NCO Corps in the military after World War II. And I use that philosophy. Never lower standards, cast a broad net, and also have a continuous education system so that people can see what the future looks like. Inherently, the affluent and middle class do it automatically. You put your kid in a certain high school, they go to a certain college, they belong to certain groups, yep. and everybody knows it. Everybody knows the path, mm-hmm. right? You get your internships, you go up and out. Well, in the military, 
You have your primary leadership courses, your officer basic, your advanced course, et cetera. And you know what the path is to lieutenant colonel and general. Now, I, I never served in, in the military, but I did a lot of USO tours. And I observed what I felt was the most integrated institution in our country and successfully so. Yeah. It do, does it disturb you or and does it surprise you? that a number of the people that we uh, see getting charged with the riots from January 6th are military. You know, there's this thing called command climate, right? And I had a first sergeant, there were certain things that you just couldn't do. When, when you see things like that, you have to nip it in the bud. And somewhere leadership has failed, and we have to own it. We have to own the fact that leadership failed. Those people forgot that they rose their right hand and swore to defend the Constitution against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. They forgot that, and there is no forgiving them for that. And we have to take a hard look in the mirror and ask, how did we get here and produce people like that? Anytime you walk by a a negative situation, you don't deal with it. You endorsed it. Somebody endorsed them. I'm confident um, that the military will deal with these people. We have no room for it in the ranks. Um, I have friends now who served with me uh, years ago in Europe. They are as far right as you can find them. We're friends on Facebook. They got their political views. and But when we get other friends who may attack me or attack them, we lock arms and we say, stand down. You don't know anything about this man. We've been together and we're together today. He can believe in what he believes in. I can believe in what I believe in. But we stand together when it comes for this country. And I think those people got out of control, and we will deal with them. I'm confident of that. I hope so, because there's some other aspects of things in the military that have gotten out of hand, sexual assault, et cetera. Again, command climate. I mean, looking the wrong way and believing that, you know, know, that's why we have uh, codes of conduct, straightforward war crimes, things you don't do against the enemy, things you don't do in ranks, things you don't do when nobody's looking. You follow the last order period, until properly relieved of your post. That is all. You don't make decisions to walk over to the other guy's side. Even if captured, okay, it is your duty to try to escape and evade. You never work with the enemy. I mean, there are rules of the game, and you do not break them. And when you do, we have to deal with you. And when we have commanders who do not enforce them, we got to replace those commanders. And it goes back to training. And this is whether it's the police or the military. That young recruit coming in is looking at the people training them and looking to them for direction, and eventually they will become the trainers. So you have to have the leadership at the top that makes it very specific. You reward the good behavior, and you are really quick to correct the bad behavior. Well, let's talk about the Minneapolis police and police because it also feels like it's become a, a place for racists to go. And we're getting a lot of bad apples, and I'm worried that that means there's bad apple trees. What are you seeing? What are you thinking? So, again, everything was fine in Minneapolis as long as the problems didn't spill over into the affluent communities, all right? Police didn't just start killing guys here or treating them bad here. Command climate. And we had great progressive mayors and city councils all the way, but It always happened. And as long as you kept it on that side of town, well, something curious happened along the way called technology. 
And the police used to be able to do things like they did with George Floyd and other people, and nobody saw it. Suddenly, body cams show up. Suddenly, phone cameras show up. But the police are like the invisible man. Hey, I can still do this and nobody can see me and I can get away with it. No, no, no. The George Floyd thing was a Birmingham moment. It was a Bull Connor moment with the attack dogs on the women and children being broadcast by Walter Cronkite into the white homes. And America really doesn't have the stomach for the viciousness of the system. My dad pointed to that when I was 12 and said, no Jew can be for that. Boom. No Jew can be for Boom. that. And he, that was in 64, he voted for Johnson and not for Goldwater, who voted against the Civil Rights Bill. But with this technology and with cell phones, but also this brave, brave young girl. Right. That's right. Who? You never did. know who the hero's going to be or the shero. Like, you know, Rosa Parks, she she was a seamstress. Okay. You, you never know what the moment is going to be. But back to Minneapolis, everything was fine as long as it was kept in the dark. Everything was fine in, in the South as long as the Klan rode at night but it, the, the, you know, and, and burned the crosses and you keep it away from us. We won't, don't want to see you doing your dirty work keeping these people in line. Then suddenly, when it's all over social media, when it's all in everyone's face, it wasn't just Minneapolis that exploded. It was the world. And, and technology did that because that little girl who now lives in a world where they immediately pull out their phones and put you on television. Well, look at the lieutenant that was out in Virginia and the police got in the car with the, got out the car with the, wait a minute, I was a lieutenant. Yep. How many lieutenants do you have out there? Alex Gorski, the CEO of uh, Johnson & Johnson, my classmate, was a lieutenant along with me. I mean, we all have the same visceral response to that regardless of where you are in life. And so I think that Minneapolis was very comfortable with its uh, progressive um, reputation. We're the land of Wellstone and Humphrey and Mundale. But as long as you keep a lid on it, keep those people over there, let the police do whatever they quote-unquote need to do. And that was fine. You run into the little boys out there in the Walmart security guard. And you say, well, what you want to be? A policeman. Really? <laughs> I mean, like, you want to come into the city and, 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 and don't get me wrong. There are some great police officers out there. I, we need them right now. Crime is rampant. I support the police. I support funding. I'm fighting real hard behind the scenes to help make that happen. We can't have criminals running uh, this place. It's not Gotham. Um, we need order in the streets, but we need order in the ranks, and that's been lost. Yeah, um, defund the police. Uh, that means different things to different people. And if it means training 911 operators to ask certain questions and determine whether they need to send cops or whether they need to send a crisis intervention team with a social worker, those kind of things can be a better allocation of resources. You can save money. You can use the police in a more intelligent way, and you can serve people better. Uh, sometimes you don't need a cop. Words have consequences, and, and these people that came up with the whole defund thing, they should have chosen different words. Well, you know, I've always said that uh, Democrats, in our messaging, we don't do a good job because our bumper stickers always end with continued on next bumper sticker. 
But this one, unfortunately, defund the police, fit on a bumper sticker. Most people, I think, thought they didn't mean uh, that defund the police. I think what they meant was uh, use the money more wisely. And if we can do some reduction in funding, yes, by getting more social workers and smarter policing, that's fine. I was a political science major. Number one, if, if you raise your right hand and say you're going to be an elected official, you need to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. All right, because you go into an OJT situation and suddenly we, we got a real world uh, crisis and you're unqualified to uh, do the work. It'll, it, as we saw in the national scene, it, it, it'll become real obvious. And so you want to walk around like a high school student going, you know, no more school, you know, shut the school down. It sounds good. OK. All right. Yeah. Right. But then what? All right. Now what? And. The impact on the morale of the good police officers, the impact on the ability of the administration to provide that leadership, you get mass retirements. And so you throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think we could be a little bit more uh, targeted in our approach. Curious thing about it that, that they didn't talk about is that both the crime and the police are symptoms of the deeper issue, the economic apartheid. Right. That's harder to talk about. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say that the crime is a result of desperate people who have no hope. And one of the messages I'm I'm all about discipline. That's my first name. But at the same time, we have to talk about stability, opportunity and prosperity, which is now the final ch- challenge in this country when it comes to black folks. I mean, we, we can vote now. Yes, we're not slaves anymore. Yes, but we're, if you recall, people denied that both of those conditions were wrong. And or they said it's really it's really not that bad. Or they said these people can't do any better. I think we're at the point now where this about can I work? Can I own a home? Can my kid go to, to a good school? We got to put that question on the table because if not, we're always going to debate about the police and the crime. I tell folks every day, what's special about the suburbs? Two garage doors go up, two cars pull out, and two people go to work. Yep. And that's what you do is provide opportunities to work. And it sets a good example for the children. If the children work on a farm where everybody gets up at 4.30 in the morning, go out and do the chores, and then off you go to school, you come back and you work some more, that's what you learn. You live in that suburban middle-class family where you get dropped off at the Montessori. I remember my, <laughs> my daughter was a little kid, man, and she didn't understand the concept of a weekend, right? She was just like, suddenly Saturday came, and she was like, what, we're not going anywhere today? If you live in a household where nobody works, then that's what you learn. And then here come all the social services, the charity, the county, and ultimately the criminal justice system. And there we are. And you've made it your life's work to give people the opportunity to change course or to continue on the course they've chosen, which is to work and make a living and live a life. It's very rewarding. I look back over my life at the people who made a difference. I was in a marching band, Mr. Clifford Matthew Bugs at Rebalt Senior High in Jacksonville, Florida. <laughs> What'd you play? Tuba, all the way through college. Of course, of course. Yeah, it's <laughs> got to go that way, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this guy, <laughs> you think about this guy. He was never home for dinner. He was out every Friday night. 
Saturdays during band season with 150 kids molding them for the future, right? And so when I look at the people coming into Summit and they're trying to find a way out and you you see them studying and now, you know, wishing sometimes they'd done better in high school and paid more attention, but now they got a 4.0. Then they go to mock interviews, right? And they're sitting there waiting to go in and they come out and the people actually said they want to hire them for that company. And now they got a job paying, you know, $35,000, dollars a year. You can always go get more education. But if I get two people like that in a household, and we forget this, Patrick Moneyham in 1965 said one of the biggest threats to America was the demise of the black family. At the time, the out of wedlock birth rate was 25%. Today is over 70%. Mission accomplished, right? Disintegrated our family. Got us down to one person uh, earning an income, the women and children living in poverty, and the men out on the streets like Peter Pan. You take those men, I have three daughters, an unemployed boy is not good marriage material, all right? You take those men and those women, they're both making 35, 40 grand a year. You have a household making 70, 80,000 starting wages. They are now in the middle class. And that's what we do at Summit. Thank you for doing that, man. My pleasure. It's good to see you and thank you for all that you do, for real. (laughs) Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. 
Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.